4: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here bringing you a wrap officially on the 2020 year. This is the second part of our holiday medley of highlights from interviews uh, over the past year. Some great stories in here. Some great little clips that are hopefully uh, will encourage you to go back and listen to some episodes you might have skipped or an episode you haven't heard in quite some time. I know I had a lot of fun putting this together, um, and really am super appreciative of all the listens and everyone sharing, giving their feedback, and all the guests that sacrifice their time to uh, to give us the content and to give listeners something to pass the time while you're driving in the car or wherever you listen to your podcast. So. Uh, if you don't, if it's not too much to ask, swing by the iTunes store or wherever you listen to podcasts and drop us a review, a rating, uh, hopefully five stars if you like the show. And that's and if you're so inclined, maybe take this episode, these little holiday medleys, send it to a friend uh, that might might not listen to podcasts but might be into it. Uh, there is a whole arsenal of, ep, of interviews and episodes that I think people have a, a great time going back and listening to. So those are the ways you could help us out, and uh, we have to give a special shout out, of course. To someone who has helped us out a lot this year, and will continue to in the next year, that's our friends at Precision Pro Golf. They are the proud presenter of Taurus Sauce. We're actually I'm, uh, releasing this episode a few hours before the final, pre- the uh, premiere of the final episode of the season, Episode 12. DJ Pie is taking on Big Randy in the championship of Season 6. DJ hoping to go back-to-back, back, Randy hoping for his first Taurus Sauce title. Uh, as you've seen this season, everyone here at No Laying Up Trust Precision Pro's Range finders to help us swing with confidence and hit more greens. This is from the first round at the Edgefield par three in Portland to this season finale at Sylvie's Valley Ranch and everywhere in between. The NX9 was with us on every shot. Not only is it a great range finder, the team at Precision Pro Golf delivers industry-leading customer service, so you're adding a range finder that you'll never second-guess from a company you can trust. So to celebrate this past season of Tour Sauce and to thank all the No Laying Up fans, Precision Pro is adding an extra $20 off NX9 rangefinder. so go to PrecisionProGolf.com, use coupon code NOLAYINGUP at checkout for $20 off our favorite rangefinder. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Let's start with another one from Jason Bone. This is from episode 342, talking about how he celebrated his million-dollar ace with uh, some of his college buddies.
3: Oh, man, you want the Mardi Gras story. So, uh, <laughs> yes, um, so I'd never been to Mardi Gras. It was, so I hit the hole-in-one November, and, you know, after I kind of figured out what, what I was doing and where I was going with all this, uh, I told all my buddies, I was like, hey, you know, I'll take you all to Mardi Gras. I'll pay for the rooms, you guys just buy the cocktails and we'll, you know, we'll call it all even. So I, uh, started to make some phone calls. This is back, you know, early nineties. I mean, nobody has cell phone. I mean, you're just picking up. I mean, I, I honestly can't even remember to tell you how I got, uh, telephone numbers other than calling directories and asking for like the Hilton. And so I'm calling all these numbers in new Orleans and I am like, uh, you know, I'm maybe a month out, maybe three weeks out from Monte Gras. And I'm like, hey, you know, I just need a couple of rooms. And, and people are just laughing. I mean, on the phone, they're just like, you got to be nuts, man. I mean, like, you know, this I mean, this is the biggest celebration uh, maybe in the United States. And you're calling three weeks thinking you're going to get a prime hotel room. So uh, I, I, needless to say, I come to find out, like, there's no chance. I mean, the, the closest place I think I could have gotten would have been like 40 minutes away You know, we're 19 years old. We would have been legal at that time to consume alcohol. And so I was like, there's no way we would, we wouldn't be, we couldn't drive. So I was like, all right, well, we can't do it. So I'm sitting in this finance class one day and like this big light bulb goes off in my head and I'm just like, oh man, I got a great idea. What I'm going to do is I want to pack everybody in a U-Haul and I'm going to drive the U-Haul down there and we're going to go to Mardi Gras out of the back of this U-Haul and i just was like this is brilliant so i i'm just thinking you know 19 years old wasn't really thinking but i was kind of thinking and uh so i had a friend of mine who you know he was kind of partial mechanic that i met in the dorm like he was always tinkering on cars and stuff and so i came up with the idea well i'll go rent this in town the biggest u-haul i could possibly rent in town rental which was like at that time it was like 29.95 a day and i'm like i will put all of my apartment furniture in the back of this u-haul and we will just i'll take all my buddies and go and i asked the guy i was like can you unhook the odometer on this u-haul and he's like absolutely i could do that so <laughs> so i'm thinking like you know we're gonna put like six miles in the u-haul but actually go to new orleans and back and so i round up all i, I round up the few guys that i told hey we're gonna go to mardi gras and one of the gentlemen was a Swedish guy, and he didn't drink at all. And he's, I, I asked him, I was like, hey, would you like to go with us to Monte Gras? Because he was like, I would love to see this experience coming from Sweden. He was like, but I, rule number one, is, the only rule is I drive, and nobody else is allowed in the front. And we were like, uh, loser. Uh, <laughs> hell yeah. I mean, you got it, buddy. This got is great. Now, now we got a designated driver to Monte Gras. And so he piles in the front of this u-haul we all get in there i got like these bunk beds and we had uh battery operated lanterns we had a keg in um just a tub of ice and just and we had fans battery operated fan i was like i'm a flat absolute genius right now because i said we're gonna go to mardi gras for 29.95 a day you know, I was like, this is brilliant. Split how many so, ways, too? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I told him I'd take care of the U-Haul, you know, and they just stopped. So we got in this car. Everybody was so excited. And, you know, we started partying on the way out of Tuscaloosa. And our my Swedish friend, Freddie, just decided he was absolutely going to slam on the brakes and just toy with us. And we just go bouncing around the back of this U-Haul. Maybe, like, not very bright, but we were just dying laughing, having a ton of fun. And... At no point, we, so we go down to Monte Gras and, and to this day or all the years that I played in New Orleans, which is kind of ironic that that was one of my victories was in New Orleans, was the Zurich Classic. But I would stay downtown. I would drive over the bridge, which we parked this U-Haul underneath, uh, which we were able to talk in to one of the parking attendants and said, you know, just pay this guy off and just let us park our U-Haul there. And he was awesome. He kind of helped us look out for it. So nobody would, you know, break in and take anything. And we get down there and we're, we're just, I mean, it, it, it's nuts. We're partying, we're having so much fun. I mean, you know, a, as you've seen in all pictures and anybody can possibly imagine, I mean, it's just, you know, shoulder, to shoulder, everywhere you go down in Bourbon Street. And we're having just an absolute blast at no point during the whole ride down there, which was a good six and a half hours, probably took us eight in the way and how many times we had to stop because the back of the door had to be cracked, right? Uh, So that we could get any sort of sunlight in there. And mainly, The main reason why, so we could use the bathroom. Oh my God. And so we just had to, you know, kind of pee out the back corner and it was just (laughs) flying out, you know, because we would be pounding. I mean, we didn't have cell phone. We had no way to communicate. So every now and then we'd stop and, you know, we'd open the door and, and, you know, get out. But that was our only method of ways to use the bathroom was to kind of go out the back corner uh, of the little door. So we're down in there. We're just having a great time. At no point, none of us, not one of us was smart enough to think, where are we going to shower like where are we going to use the bathroom how are we going to brush our teeth i mean none of that ever hit us and so it was a ton of fun for three days we slept in this u-haul we were just nasty i mean it, it was but the going down we thought we were that everybody thought i was a genius coming back everybody thought i was the biggest idiot on the face of the planet everybody was just disgusted we were just sick we were you know we had oh it was just awful we had thrown up in the u-haul i mean it was just it was just it was awful the u-haul was just absolutely trashed so i get back to tuscaloosa we drive this u-haul to a dump i take all of my furniture that was in that u-haul i just dumped it out into this dump and we sprayed the back of it and we rehooked the odometer and turned it in for a four-day rental so, I mean, like, to think that I did, you know, Mardi Gras for $150 uh, for four days was pretty, pretty impressive. So, that was...
4: <laughs> it cost you the furniture, but though.
3: It did cost me the furniture, which, uh, if you would have seen this furniture and uh, anything around this furniture, you, did, you would not have wanted it. So, after, after five guys had spent, uh, you know, four days in the back of a U-Haul, it was pretty nasty.
4: Next up, one of my highlight interviews of the year, if you ask me, is a very recent one. If you're listening to this here at the end of 2020, 386 with Keith Mitchell. Um, I got a lot of messages. Yeah, you know, I was going to skip this episode. I I saw the name, just nothing really caught my eye. Please do not do that. It's a great, great conversation. He makes, you know, you'll see in this clip how good he is at illustrating his points and has some great thoughts on distance. And uh, it's one that I promise you will not regret if you go back and listen to episode 386, Keith Mitchell.
2: I mean, that's perfectly said. And then the other, the, you know, a lot of my, my, probably my least favorite thing that anyone that has anything to do with professional golf says is it only takes one week. <laughs> like, all it takes is one good week. Like, oh yeah, Keith had one good week at the Honda and he's playing in all the majors and WGCs and whatever, right? Do you know how many freaking weeks it took to have one good week? It took like five years of good weeks to build the confidence to do that. Yes, on paper on results, oh man, all it takes is one good week. like you're not wrong in the surface level you right result oriented world that we live in, right? Everybody can log on to and see what I shot the last week, right? Well, what if something I clicked that week on the back nine when I missed the cut and it felt good and I was going and had a great off-week practice in it and I went and won. Is it one good week? No, it had everything to do with before that.
4: Take this, you know, for a very surface level comment, but to me it's it seems almost I don't know how you define harder in this scenario. It's harder to get to where you are than it is to succeed where you currently are does that make sense
2: yeah I mean yes I don't know how to phrase that No, I know what you're saying it's very hard to get where we are but it's I mean I honestly personally you know 2020 after the pandemic we went back I didn't play very well right I just didn't and my thing is like for me it's so hard to maintain that same thing yes it's it's easier on the tour because you have 125 guys keep their job you know the the Latin tour was 60, the Corn Ferry is 70 or 75, and then even to move up, you have to be top 10, top 25. Well, on tour, yeah, it's easier to maintain that because you have more flexibility. Like, it's easier to finish in the top 125 than it is to finish on the 25, right? But to play where everyone that's on the PGA Tour wants to play, which is all the majors, all the WGCs, the tour championship, you know, trying to win the FedEx Cup, all that, like, you have to finish in the top 25 every year on the PG tour. That is – that's hard. I mean, I'm sorry. That's hard. Like, that, yeah. like that is a lot hard. I'm not saying it's harder than getting to the tour, but I'm saying it's that whole separate – like, there's that next line, that next, you know, real thin line between finishing, you know, 50th and 25th. And trust me, your sponsors know when you don't. Your performance-based <laughs> stuff knows when you don't. Know. Your FedEx company, everything knows. Like, yeah, we play for a lot of money, but there's – like the difference in the guys that are finishing top ten in the world and the guys that are finishing top hundred in the world, I mean it's it's tenfold.
4: Next up, this is uh, again our man Peter Costas from episode two eighty two, um, the second kind of wavelengths he made in this episode uh, about Patrick Reed and some cheating incidents that he had seen. Um, and at this point of the interview, I had actually already spilled water all over my keyboard, so my microphone sounds horrible. But uh, another great story from Peter Costas from episode two eighty two.
5: I was told by Frank Tricini, in the Godfather of Golf on TV, um, and this was kind of the unwritten rule um, that we are there to report the story, not to be part of the story. Um, and and he he was adamant about that, right? Mm-hmm. So um, like we could never call a penalty on a player, but we could comment if a penalty was called on a player. Yeah, that's the difference between reporting on a story and being a part of the story right mm-hmm. i've seen patrick reed improve his lie up close and personal f- four times now whoa by putting you, you can go on youtube oh i've seen it um, that's
4: why i'm asking
5: <laughs> and, and and you know the uh, it's the only time i ever shut McCord up he didn't know what to say <laughs> when i said well you know the lie that i saw originally wouldn't have allowed for this shot because he put four or five clubs behind the ball you know kind of faking whether he's going to hit this shot or hit that shot, whatever. By the time he was done, he hit a freaking three-wood out of there, mm-hmm. which when I saw it was it was a sand wedge layup originally, right? I saw him. I, I was in the tower at 16 at San Diego on, on the par three during uh, Golf Channel telecast, and he hit it over the green and did the same thing, put three or four clubs behind, and, and it was really a, a treacherous shot that nobody had gotten it close all day long from over there. And by the time he was done, I could I could read Callaway on the golf ball from my tower. So but I can't say anything. Hmm. I can't be the story. Wow. Right. Yeah. Now I'm done. I don't really care. Yeah. But but there there was another incident in Hartford and another incident in San Diego. And I was there and I saw them all. But we can't we can't be the story.
4: What was the incident in Hartford?
5: Uh, Over the 17th green. Same thing, same same modus operandi. Hmm. I'm not even sure that he knows he's doing it. Sometimes, uh, maybe he does. I, I, I don't know. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna uh, assign intent. Yeah. Is that but all I'm going to tell you? Is when I saw. Is
4: that something you see run rampant on the PGA Tour? Like from a no, no. no. It's no.
6: Huh?
4: And you just so it wasn't a surprise to you when all the stuff happened in the Bahamas? No. Wow. No. Hmm. That is, that is fascinating. I, I had, you know, there's kind of just some surface evidence that is, you know, surface level evidence that has floated around in, in the months since then. But I had not, uh, I had not heard you speak on this, but those specifics that, uh, that, that defiantly, that's, that's fascinating. I think
5: there's always been a player or two throughout history, you know, who fudged with their coin, marking the ball, who, who, um, you know, stepped on a spike mark, you know, with their foot walking across their line. Um, you know, I mean, everybody's – there's always been a player or two. It's, it's rare. It's really, really rare in the PGA Tour, I have to say. I mean, 99.99% of the guys play by the rule book, and that, and they're to be applauded for that.
4: Well, it's, that, just, that's, it's just amazing that's what that, it's to that this happens in front of people, though, that you have a clear, eye, a clear vision of all this stuff, and it, and it, it happens.
5: It's been my experience that uh, people who are trying to get away with something think that they're invisible, that nobody's watching, that they're so cool doing it that nobody will get it.
4: We're going to check back in with Peter Costas. This is his second visit to the podcast later uh, this summer, episode 330, telling a uh, great story about the Masters.
5: 1996, I will always remember the year that the Golf Channel was born because it was 1996 at the Masters they had, they sent Brian Hammonds. He was the only person there. They had a cameraman and, and Brian and he would send reports back to Orlando. On Saturday nights, I'm walking from the 10th tower after we're off the air, back to the TV compound, which is behind the part three golf course. And Brian was down there getting ready to do a standup back to Orlando. He looks at me and he goes, well, Looks like Sharky's going to finally get his green jacket. And I made the mistake of all mistakes, rookie mistake. I made the assumption that our conversation was a private conversation off the record, which it wasn't. And Brian did absolutely nothing wrong. But I said, look, Brian, I'm not sure about that. He goes, what? He's got a six shot lead. I said, yeah. You know, Butch changed his grip, strengthened his grip earlier in the week He kept it on Thursday, played great, had a two-shot lead. His grip got a little bit weaker on Friday, played okay, ended up with a four-shot lead. His grip got even weaker today. He missed it both ways, which you can't do on this golf course. And if it hadn't been for some unbelievable short game shots, you know, he could have shot 78 today, but he's got a six-shot lead. So his lead's gone from two to four to six, and everybody thinks he's playing better. Well, if his group gets any weaker, he could be in for a long day tomorrow. That's what I said. Now, unbeknownst to me, Golf Channel had bought time on the local CBS affiliate in Augusta, Georgia for the week. They bought an hour at night to do a recap, whatever. And so evidently I didn't see it, but evidently they go back and forth with Brian they asked Brian what the state of affairs was in Augusta. And he said, virtually everybody I've talked to thinks that Greg Norman is going to win his first green jacket tomorrow, except just inter- interestingly enough, a few moments ago, I talked with CBS's Peter Costas, who said that Greg could be in for a long day, blah, blah, blah. Well, don't you know that Greg was watching? <laughs> Background story, Frank and our producer, and Greg Norman were best of friends. Uh, really, really good friends, and so Sunday morning, Greg called Frank, and basically unloaded on Frank about me and my comments. Now I know nothing; none, none of this has happened. I walk into the TV compound, and, and Frank screams out of his office: "Costas, get in here now!" Said, oh God, what have I done wrong now? <laughs> And he said, did you tell the whole world last night that Norman was gonna choke today? And I go, "Uh, no, I don't think so, Frank. I I would have remembered if I said that. He goes, well, I just hung up with the phone with him and he wanted to put his hands around your throat and strangle you. So I'm going, what is this about? Then it dawned on me that I had talked to Brian and then one thing led to another. So Frank threw me out of his office, told me to quit being stupid. And and then I put two and two together and I figured out what happened because one of the techs told me that they saw it on the Golf Channel they were watching uh, Saturday night. And so I walked back into Frank's office and and back then, we don't do it anymore or CBS doesn't do it anymore, but there was a fairly substantial Calcutta and uh, Frank had Norman in the pool. And so I walked back in and I said, Frank, I finally figured out what happened. This is what happened. And by the way, if all he has to do on what is arguably the most important morning of his golf life is to call you and complain about me, he's in worse trouble than I thought when I walked out.
4: Uh, that speaks to his mindset exactly of where he was at that day, which I heard that story. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, that was I, I can't believe well, I it, it.
5: it was mechanical. It wasn't. Yeah, he didn't choke. Okay. Everybody wants to think that he, ch- it was mechanical. You know, you can't make a grip change uh, three days before the start of a major championship and expect it to, to, to last for the tournament under, under pressure, everybody reverts to instinct and his instinct was a weaker left-hand grip, but he'd been practicing with a stronger left-hand grip. So he had a mechanical thing going on and he was fighting it. And then you start fighting that. And then you get Faldo in the same group as you and, and it's the Masters, and you know, you desperately want to win it and whatever, and it snowballs.
4: Up next, episode 371, again with Maddie Kelly telling us about a tree at Augusta that absolutely blew our minds. People are arguing about whether or not there's going to be a new T on 13. I was like, guys, I still don't image, know. Yeah. The images are not, unless no. they did it super
7: secretive in the last week. Right. There is I think no new T. They tea. said there, not only is there not going to be it this year, it's not going to be uh, for, for April? April either. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, you go on Google Earth, and they still, there's, they haven't done it yet. Well, I don't know how updated the Google Earth photos are, but but the,
4: there's been in, planes flying over with images right. that show the 13th T and they show the road back there but there is no new, no new back T back there. Good. So, but yeah, I don't know if they're going to some people are throwing out ideas like move the T further left, maybe they might plant some trees down the left to prevent what Bryson might potentially
7: do. So, so they do have they really don't have to move that T that much. If they just use the left side of that T and what they actually have a there's a limb that has a cable tied to it. And in the practice rounds, one of the time they'll have that really tight, and the limb kind of sits way more upright. And then you get there in the tournament, and they've loosened it down. and It sits like That's this a little bit. Sick. Oh my god! <laughs> so, if they just use the left side of that tee, you really now you can't take that. I mean, you can, I guess, if you've got if you that ballsy to take that on. Yeah, you can. But now it becomes almost like a hook, like on ten. If they just use the left side of that tee, um, and I'm but I'm sure that if they do move it, they'll move it five ten yards maybe and be a totally different hole but Tying back lives what are, what other stuff you got like that <laughs> how that's, much do you I, love the fact that there's no that there's no green reading books well I was actually thinking of, I don't do they even has there ever been one I don't think they exist I don't think they've let anyone on on exactly. side to do it um and Bryson's... like his putting stats at Augusta are far worse than anyone yeah, else. yeah that's right? interesting I didn't know uh, yeah yeah I mean I, I think I don't think they should be around anyway but I love it I don't think yeah. I th- as especially for that place when the parts are so severe it's almost like that's what makes the pot so hard is because yeah it looks really severe and it's probably a two or three degree slope who really knows but the guys who do the aim point train themselves to to do all that and that's fair play to them they can they can do that but yeah no book I like I like the idea of no greens books
4: before we get to the next clip I want to give a shout out to our friends at weatherman umbrellas I cannot be the only one that has done this if you go in the department stores you go in like Home Depot or something They sell these like little $5 golf umbrellas. They're they're called golf umbrellas, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I could use one of those on the golf course. They do not hold up. You need a quality, quality umbrella on the golf course, and that's what you're going to get. From Weatherman, they were the winner of the Golf Digest Editor's Choice Award for Best Umbrella each of the last three years. They even supply the U.S. Ryder Cup team umbrellas, and they are wind tunnel tested up to 55 miles an hour. That's a lot of wind. I know it's December. I know you're probably not thinking about this right now, but they also offer up maximum UV protection. I've become umbrella in the sun guy. I never thought I'd be that guy, but uh, it is important. It's more important than you probably realize. So again, go to weathermanumbrella.com and you can use promo code make it rain for 25% off your entire order. Again, that's weathermanumbrella.com promo code make it rain. Next up, episode 365 with Rocco Mediate telling uh, a Tiger story that, you know, it might have been told in the past before, but just about how it's kind of weird that they uh, haven't really reconciled or talked much uh, since that happened and a a great autograph story.
8: You know, I don't know what happened with the autograph. I'll tell you the autograph story. It's, you know, people laugh about it, but it kind of bothered me because I'm like, really? I mean, really? All I wanted was something I could put in the wall and show the kids. That's it. You know, I, I don't want anything special. I'll Just say rock. You got lucky to even be there. Could you
4: tell the story real quick for those that haven't heard it?
8: Yeah, I asked him to sign. I said, "Hey, sign this for me. I'm going to put your locker. I got the pin sheet. Only four of them made. I got the I got the um, picture. Him and I. I'm, we're both laughing. He got the trophy, and we're both laughing. Great picture. Great picture. So I'm like, personalize it for me. Say something stupid on there. I don't care what you say. You know, you're 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 lucky, or what, you're old. How'd you get here? You know, anything. So I'm putting a wall so I can hear it. Look, boys, look at what I did in 2008. Isn't that cool? I lost, but damn, I had a good time. Well, I get the picture back. It's got his signature on the bottom right. I'm like, really? There's no nothing? I mean, there's nothing? To rock a great week or uh, you got lucky. Something. Yeah. Bust my balls. Do anything. I don't care what you write on there. I'll put it on the wall. Well, I ain't got nothing on the wall. It makes me mad. I didn't even sign the pin sheet. So I'm like, really? You're you're treating me like the other people? We had something special for like six hours. (laughs) Okay? It was really cool to me. Another notch in his belt. One of the funnest days I've ever had in my life. Still to this day. On the golf course.
4: And I think that's what made it, you know, the story that it is, is that the fun you were having was evident to everyone. Oh, my God,
8: in heaven. It was Yeah, Yeah, it was was hilarious. I mean,
4: you could have handled that two ways. You could have been super nervous and competitive, or you could have had fun. No, I
8: was very, very nervous. But you have to. Of course you are. You're darn right you're nervous. You're nervous as a tick out there, but it's a good nervous. You know, I would have been really – well, I wouldn't have been there. If, if I wasn't playing good in that position, then you're really nervous, but you can't be not playing good in that position. I mean you can't be, so it's just the way it was. But, yeah, that, that bothered me. I mean I'm over it now. I, I love the guy. I love him. I watch him every time I can watch him. You know, I was mad at him for years because he, he kept messing with his golf swing with the wrong people, and you see what happened. And I was a little vocal about that, maybe a little too much. But it was because I cared. Um, I, I wasn't trying to be mean because, but, you know, he's probably mad at me. for that. I don't really know. I haven't talked to him in years. But I still love it. I'm not surprised that he won the Masters. I won't be surprised if he wins a couple more majors at all. I mean, his golf swings back where it belongs. But, um, you know, it was fun for me. But it, it didn't hurt me. You know, that, that term, yeah, it, it hurt for a couple months after. It hurt a lot. Uh, because it just hurt, but I lost in a way where I lost. I didn't get, I got beat. I should say I didn't, uh, do something bad. Like, you know, no one talks about this. Think about this 90th hole. Okay. The only way I can drive far enough to get to that green is at a big, low, like a nasty hook. So it rolls. I did it the first day and knocked it on the first day, but I couldn't hit a pretty one because it wouldn't go anywhere. Like he had a pretty one. He had a five iron his hand. Second shot. If I'd have killed one, I could have got a three-wood there probably. Okay. And I would have if I – but I tried to hit it, hooked it in the left rough again because that's where it was going to go. And I laid up, and he hits it on the green, which I knew he would. I had a pretty good nervy wedge about 15 feet left of the old pin high. So it wasn't bad. You know, it's nervy, nervy. It was like it wasn't a full wedge. It was I couldn't get the other one there, and I had to kind of chip it. Hard to do in that situation. <laughs> so I hit a good shot. So here's what no one talks about. So he's got a 40-some footer for eagle. I got a 15, 18-footer for birdie. If he makes and I miss, I lose. If he misses and I make, I win. Neither one of those things happen. He knocks it four feet by. I hit mine a little too hard, but at least at had pace, and it never really broke much. Even if I'd hit it where I wanted I think I'd miss it left. but we'll never know. It goes three feet by. So now we both have these putts. Now the greens are as good as they are because it's just us, right? He's got a four-footer. I got a three-footer. If he makes and I miss, I lose. If he misses and I make, I win. Same scenario. The genius of Tiger Woods is this. The putt he hit slammed into the back of the hole. It didn't just go in. It sl- if it misses, it's 10 feet by. That's what he. That's why he was great. You know, he hit it absolutely perfect, right in the middle. Well, no one talks about this. I got three feet. I miss. We're done here. Three feet on any on a perfect green or a po green. I don't care what it is. It's not. Ta- it's not just go up and hit it. But that's what I had to take it as, and that's what I did.
4: That's the perfect length of like enough to be nerve way enough to be nervous enough. Like the perfect length of like, I I'm an idiot. If I miss this, <laughs> of,
8: of course it is. And that's well. I'm not only am I an idiot, the career is over. Yeah. <laughs> it's that's one of those times where you, when you look back, you know, if I miss that, I might've been done forever. Hmm. Could you imagine yeah. what all of a sudden I got a putt to win and now I just lost.
4: <laughs> Do you have any, any regrets from that week? Anything you look back and said, I just wish I'd have done this and maybe I would have won.
8: Um, no, I wish I'd have been the putter the putter I am now. You know, I, I missed a lot of putts. I mean, uh, we can all say it. You know, you go. We can all say what happens uh, during a week, any week. But you know, I I hit that putt on on the seventy first hole really good. I thought I made it when it left the face. It was just a little green of so fast back there. But you know, I had I hit you know went five feet by I made that one. You know, for par. But um, after that, but no, I wish I'd have been a little better putter because everything else I did really, really, really good all week. The golf swing worked. I hit it really good. I uh, pitched it good. My bunker game, all that crap was good. I I just, if I was a little bit better putter, I might've won the golf tournament. Might've. Southern Hills in one if I was a little better putter, I would've won that golf tournament. I know I finished fourth or so, but I was right. Three putted three times in the back nine. And so you, I look at it that way, but no, the regrets, no. I learned a lot about what I've done in my career and how it would hold up against. See, you don't get that test. It's a test. You don't get the world watching, the world, and then you don't get him. I don't care if he had one leg. You don't get him. He never winced on Monday. He never went down on Monday. He never did anything on Monday that he did the rest of the week.
4: What did you do the night, the Monday night after uh, after the playoff?
8: I went up to some my buddy's place in um, uh, L.A., just outside of L.A., and we had dinner and stuff, and hung around. Then I did the Leno show the next day, and I got a lot of crap for that. <laughs> Why does the loser get the Leno show? Well, because Tiger couldn't. Okay, they asked me to do it, so I said, "Yeah." Who would say no to the Leno? Show? Right. Yeah, like like it was me. Like I'm some kind of ass that I did the Leno. It was so much fun. I was so talk about nervous. Holy crap, was I nervous? Put you in something you never do, then you're really nervous. But he was great. I had a great time. It was fantastic. You know, I told the people, stick it in your, you know, shove it up your ass. You don't like it. Don't watch. It wasn't my fault. I didn't ask to be on the show. They, they asked me. Letterman wanted me to do the show, but I couldn't get there. I was in LA. So, I mean, it wasn't my fault they called. <laughs> Tiger couldn't I was do it. Say, he wasn't these doing anything. Stories
4: need to be told. Like, uh, there shouldn't be. Yeah, nobody.
8: Tiger couldn't do it. I did a couple things for him at. I did one thing for him at his event in, um, in a uh, congressional that year. He asked me, Hey, can you cover for me? Cause he's not playing. You know, I said, well, of course I can. So I did a little thing for him there. It was, it was great. That's what it's about. It's just, you know, like I said, it's what it's about. And yeah, I don't know why we never talked. I don't know why he didn't sign my personalizing my thing. People think it's petty, but for on my part, I'm like, it's not, I wanted him to personalize my picture. When's the last time you were in the U.S. open playoff with Tiger Woods? Oh, never. Sorry. Then you don't get to talk. <laughs>
4: next up it's Paul McGinley again this is from episode 359 another fantastic Ryder Cup story this was again one of my favorite pods of the year talking about how Sam Torrance's captaincy ended up affecting him as he played in the A Ryder Cup and uh, also how it affected his captaincy as well down the
9: road yeah well I I knew I wasn't playing in the morning Sam capped me really well and you know that's an important thing to kind of touch on so what he did myself there was four of us myself Lee Westwood, uh, Philip Price, I think it was Per Folke. The four of us had really lost form that year. You know, some players are playing better. Some, play- No, no, it was Jesper Parnovic. Those four players, and Jesper was still in America. So the three of us uh, who were based in, in, in the UK um, were brought up to um, the Belfry the week before by Sam. I live beside Sam here down in Sunningdale, and uh, we went up for a practice round 12 or 10 days maybe before the Ryder Cup, uh, the World Championship was on over in Ireland, ironically. Uh, none of us had qualified to play in that. And uh, he said, come on, let's get in. Let's all get together and get up and, and have a run around uh, in the Belfry, get to have a look at the course. At that stage, all the stands were up and we kind of had a nice uh, four ball on the way around. We had a bit of food afterwards, a nice bit of banter. Um, and then on the way back, we got in, Sam had a, a driven BMW, um, a, a driver. And we got in the back of the car and he jumps in the back beside me, uh, this big 7 Series BMW. And he's got a bottle of pink champagne and two glasses. He opens up the bottle of champagne. The, the, the drive back is about two hours from, from Birmingham in the Belfry. He said, right, we're going to talk about your role this week. And he went through everything. And he basically showed so much confidence in me. He told me the role everybody was going to play, how many matches everybody was going to play, how many matches I was going to play, who my, who my partners would be just gave me such exude of, of of confidence that, you know, you're part of the team. You're not kind of a guy I'm trying to manage here. Uh, he made me mm. a real, real part of it. And, and getting out of the car on the far side, you know, I really felt like I was going to be in a very important – he made me feel a very important part of his team, a very important member of his team, even though, you know, on the car journey on the way up, I felt that I was the outsider and I was a problem that he had to manage.
4: Wow. That sounds like leadership to me. I feel I feel like on, on our side of the pond, it's a lot of the – the players dictating so much stuff and, and and almost not having feeling like they're kind of reporting to someone. I, I get the sense from you that you just had such respect for the captaincy and, and the, maybe the Europeans have more more respect for, you know, the, the, the process and the figurehead at the top of it uh, than uh, than maybe the Americans. do. I don't know if you can speak to that directly, but that just sounds like a very different system than maybe what we have.
9: Well, I mean, I think it's different in America now, Chris, but certainly one, one there's a huge important dynamic here um, that America were missing that don't do now. And that was the fact that all of the Ryder Cup captains in Europe were chosen by their peers, chosen by the players, right? The players yeah. committee, representative of the players, were the guys who chose who the captain would be. Not, you know, a PGA board or, you know, somebody from the outside or you know some figureheads picking it no it was the actual players who put the captain in place and that was a very important dynamic i know post task force now american have changed that and the players through the task force are, are, are very much in control of that now but you know, i felt that was probably where a lot of that respect came from
4: well going back to o2 you uh you become the person that uh is seals the clinching point one I want to know why it seems that to, that to be so uh, so important to the European players and that's something that I, I hear talked about a lot which is I find that very interesting because I think you guys have such a great team dynamic to it that it does seem uh, I remember Paul Azinger always referencing like the the European nobody wants to be the guy that loses the final point but the Europeans take special special joy in, in clinching that final point so one how did you end up in that situation uh, where you were you know having the match with Jim Furick? To uh, to get that final the point you needed and you know what was that what was that like for you as a first time rider cupper?
9: well again I'll just tell I'll answer your question if you don't mind by telling you a little story on it um so my role was to play two day two, two rounds the first two days and Porter Carrington was going to be my partner I was going to play in the afternoon foursomes with him and then i was going to play in the morning foursomes on the second day and then i was going to play my singles match and uh first time we, we go out the first day and we lose three and two uh but i played quite well that was my first Ryder cup match i f- held my own uh Patrick felt he didn't play very well i went to sam afterwards and said look i've let paul down i haven't played very well i need uh, the morning off tomorrow um to practice so Sam uh, decided to leave him out. So Sam comes to me and he says, Paul, I got bad news. Paul doesn't want to play tomorrow. He really feels to let you down today. And I'm afraid um, that leaves you without a partner. I'm going to put in somebody else to play because you haven't prepared to play with... Uh, you know, you've prepared to play with Padraic and, and, you know, I, I don't want to take a chance of putting you with somebody else. So he said, look, you the afternoon is the four ball. You're probably not you're not going to play that. You know that anyway. So you won't be playing now to the singles. So I'm really disappointed because I've just got a taste of my first Ryder Cup match. Even though I've lost, I felt I've held my own. And now I want more. I've got like a little drug all of a sudden. I've forgotten about my form coming into it. And I'm I'm looking forward to having another bite of the cherry. So roll out the next day, uh, which is a Saturday morning, and I'm out walking. Uh, we played nine holes behind the groups that went off just to kind of get a feel for the course. Uh, I knew I wasn't playing in the afternoon. And then uh, one of the vice captains came down the fairway as we come up the ninth, a guy called Derek Cooper, and uh, he, he turned the cart over towards me. We all looking at each other. God, what's he coming down here for? Who's What's happened or who's playing in the afternoon? And he turned it over to me. He said, jump in the cart, Paul. You're on the tee in 45 minutes. You're playing with Darren. So I get up to the... Uh, up. Into the players' lounge, into the players' lounge, and I sit down. and uh, Sam comes over and he says, "Look," he said, "last minute decision. Uh, Thomas played really poor. Thomas Bjorn with this morning with with Darren. I'm going to give Thomas a rest. You and Darren are good friends. I know you can fit in well with him in the four ball Off you go. I know you'll be great." And off we went, and, and we had an unbelievable game. myself played myself and Darren played in the fourth game. Um, I think we played Davis and uh, Scott Hoke. I think it was Davis and Scott Hoke uh, in the four ball on Saturday afternoon. So all of the matches were finished. We were one down playing the eighteenth hole. Uh, the game, the golf was unbelievable. I, you know, we we were about eleven or twelve under par better ball, uh, and so were the Americans. The golf was fabulous. Um, no, it was Jim Furyk actually was playing, if I remember rightly. So up the eighteenth, the dog leg left over the water. I'm on the fairway. Hoke was on the fairway. Anyway, cut long story short, uh, the other three players made a bogey and I hit an unbelievable four shot uh, forearm. It was the last shot of the day, and I held this forearm beautifully into a back right pin against the wind. The wind was whipping across and I hit this unbelievable, one of the best forearms I ever hit to about 20 feet, made par, won the hole. Now that half the match, now we were level going into the, into the level overall going into the singles the following day. It was a massive psychological boost for the team. And I performed heroically when it counted in the last few holes at birdied 16 as well. And uh, we come up into the into the lounge afterwards and everybody's on a high. The music's going. We're flying as a team. Sam comes over and gives me this massive bear hug. This, this grizzly, uh, grizzly, grizzly guy grabbing me, pulling me really tight. And he whispers in my ear, he said, McGinley, you showed so much balls today at that number um when it really counted on that 18th hole, I'm going to put you out tomorrow, number 12, because I know you can handle a big occasion if it comes down to it. So now I am 10 foot tall. I mean, picture a guy coming in, missing more cuts than he's making. And uh, now here I am going to be playing the anchor role in the Ryder Cup team the following day in a match that could well come down um, to the last game. So I go off to my room and I have a shower and I come back down for dinner and uh, all the guys are sitting down. And I remember Thomas Bjorn saying to me, have you seen the draw for tomorrow? I said, no, but I'd known in my own head that Sam, I was playing number 12, Sam had told me, but I didn't say it to anybody and I kind of casually went over, picked up the draw and I looked down number 12, Jesper Parnovic. Then I looked up number one and it was Monty and I thought, like, where am I? And then I saw myself at, at number nine and I thought, God, I'm being hidden. Sam's playing games with me here. He's saying one thing and doing another. He's kind of hidden me there at number nine in the order. So I say nothing and I sit down and Sam comes comes in about 20 minutes later from his press conference. And as he comes in, I step up and I go over to walk over. And he says, "I know I want to speak to you. Come on over here. And he pulls me over again, sits me down, pulls up a chair right opposite him, and gets his face right in mine. He says, I know what you're going to say. And I said, well, look, Sam, you told me I was going to play number 12. And I was looking forward to playing that role. And, you know, I just feel like you are hitting me now. And number nine. He said, no. He said, before I put in the team, I had to think about it. And I really feel the winning point is going to come somewhere between 8 and 10. And I put you right in the middle there. I know you can handle this occasion when it comes down to it. So I was kind of pacified and I thought, okay, fine. If that's what he thinks, that's what I'm going to do. And, and off I went. Quite Long story short, roll up the next day. I'm playing Jim Furyk in the singles. And we've just missed the green. Both of us have missed a green on 18 left. And uh, as I'm walking up, um, Sam is leaning against the bridge. I can still see him leaning against this bridge with this big, huge grin on his face. As I'm walking up, remember, the Rider Cup is on the line. And this, this guy has got the biggest grin you've ever seen, the captain, looking at me as I reach it. And as I reach the bridge, he puts my ha- his hand on my shoulder and walks across the bridge at me. And he says, this is why you're number nine. Do this for me. Do this for your team freights. You've got this. And I walked over the bridge and I walked away. And rather than thinking, oh, my God, the Rider Cup's on the line, he, 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 he also told me that up and down would, would win the Rider Cup for us. As I walked away, rather than thinking, oh, my God, I hope I don't screw it up, I hope I don't, I felt the opposite. I felt so empowered and unshackled to think, I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And that was the mindset I did. And, and I chipped it on to whatever it was, 10, 12 feet and, and hold the putt. And so that was the kind of management Sam did of me. And he giving me that responsibility felt was was what I needed. and 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 I seemed to relish it.
4: Up next, Paul Azinger from episode 280 talking about uh, flying on the team plane um, from the U.S. to Australia for the President's Cup and a Tiger Story. And, uh, yeah, Paul Azinger, episode 280.
1: It was great. Royal Melbourne would have been my all-time favorite golf course except for that it's two courses put together to be one. So that, that is the only thing. Um, there's very few places I've ever been where uh, every single hole I just walked up on the hole and just said, well, wow, look at this, look at this hole. The great part about that whole trip, we were in the Bahamas, and we were able to get on the charter, about four of us, with NBC. Hicks was on there, producers were on there, and and, uh, everybody else was coming from different places. And we were on with the team. We stopped in Acapulco for three hours from the Bahamas to refuel, it took forever. And uh, there was a a killer plane. And we were able, I was able to go up, we all did hang with the players up there in the big round tables like when we're sitting at here Hmm. a bar and the people serving drink. it was just unreal we're on that plane for 26 hours but it was just (laughs) so fun uh, to get to know them and to see what the deal was when it was wheels up in acapulco there was no more alcohol for that team uh, until they left or until they won Uh, those guys were pretty relaxed but also at the same time they were pretty disciplined and I had a great time up there. Tiger, Tiger had a couple of drinks, and he was having a big time. And and Kuchar was hilarious. He loves this uh, particular brand of tequila. He was a killer. Tiger was cutting cards for like a hundred dollars a cut, high low. I came walking in there. I haven't said you know Tiger and I don't talk. I was one of the guys at ESPN that had to do Sports Center hits on him when he was going through everything. It was hard because um, I love Tiger. I Ryder Cup partners and all that, but. Uh, you know, he looks at me, but we don't really talk that much anymore. I'm TV now, so it's all right. But we still talk. <laughs> but anyway, I walked into that area, part the curtains, go up there into where all the players are hanging. And he's Tiger looks up. He goes, Zingy, Zingy, come over here. Cut me 100 high-low, high-low. I was like, I'm not doing that. But he was ready to go. And, you know, he just was one of the guys. His hat was on backwards. He was wearing a T-shirt. Those players love him. And it was great to see Tiger look like that and be that guy to a whole generation of kids that don't even remember one thing about me. I remember the day Tiger showed up. They don't know squat about me. I'm, I've am i gone that old. To a, I remember Tiger when he showed up untouchable. Couldn't get in that inner circle. Couldn't get near him for a practice round. If I wanted to play a practice round, it would have been impossible to play a practice round with Tiger. He was locked up. O'Meara, Cook maybe. It's a different guy, man. He, he just let his guard down. He went from Uncomfortable if you're comfortable with him to more uncomfortable if you're not comfortable with him. Tiger, and I like this tiger more. I don't know if he'll ever be, it won't be as good as the other tiger, but that's the body. Mm -hmm. But after seeing that and then seeing the comeback, I feel like after Stricker's President's Cup or Ryder Cup, he's president Cup, yeah, after Stricker's Ryder Cup in Wisconsin, I think that the tour and the pj of america should name tiger all-time captain if the pj of america really wants to win and maybe the win with strict um, they need to get rid of that attitude that there's more captains than there are Ryder cups that i would have loved to have done several rider cups instead of 18 or 19 living captains i think it would have been great you know if there was 11 living cap maybe i would have never been a captain because the captains before me would have captained for a few years. But the attitude at the PJ of America has always been more, um, we just want to give you the honor of being the captain and the, also the punishment of what that did for how you're going to be remembered because you got your butt handed
4: to you. Well, <laughs> how important is it? And I realize I'm asking a former player in this regard, but how important is it? How necessary is it for a player to be the captain of the Ryder Cup team? Oh, you're thinking like bring in uh I all, that's an open-ended question. I'm just saying how why does bring it in a have, bring have a baseball player. Yeah,
1: you're right, it doesn't. Uh, uh, it doesn't. But it should. You know, anybody could do it, I suppose. Ken Venturi captained the President's Cup team and he didn't know what clubs players were using and all that stuff. So he knew how golf worked and he knows how personalities work, I think. He knew that. Yeah, I I think I mean, you'll never go outside of the players being the captains. I think the one rule that needed to go away altogether was the idea that you had to have won a major to be a Ryder cup captain is stupid.
4: Up next episode 288. This is with Colin Morikawa. We recorded this during the uh, players championship, uh, talking about adjusting his expectations uh, coming out as a rookie and how that's led to a lot of his success. Episode 288, Colin Morikawa.
10: Yeah. So the, I mean, the seven events you have to be ready. You know there's that 125 number that you gotta reach to get your card. Did you know what that point number was? I didn't know what that points number, because for me, if I got ahead of myself that summer, just for the next event, that next start, it was gonna be like, you know, you're gonna start thinking ahead, you're gonna be like, oh, I need to finish 24th just to (laughs) get enough points, and like, that's when things go bad. Yeah, That's when everything goes bad, and um, for me, you know, I just had to go out there and literally try and win. And I don't think I had that mindset until I heard Brooks. You know, I was just, I heard it, I, I read it through something. Brooks at Travelers, which is when, you know, all of us rookies, it was the four of us, me, Matt Wolf, Victor Hovland, Justin Sa, they all kind of touted us, put us all on a pedestal together right there, said we're all starting here, even though I already had two starts already. Yeah. And, you know, they said... All right, I heard Brooks say I went from thinking about just making cuts when I first turned pro to top 25s, top 10s, top 5s to winning. And I know he obviously has that mindset. We're going to win every week. Rory has that mindset. Tiger has that mindset. So why can't I just change my mindset like that quicker? I felt like I prepped already. I felt like my game was there. Why not change it to, you know, mis- or making cuts are great to let's try and win. So that summer there was a lot to to you know to work through. And after three M happened, I was still shy of so many points I needed. <laughs> Which is crazy. And I had three more starts left. And I knew I knew I was gonna get it done. I just had that feeling it, it was gonna happen you know
4: up next episode 292 this is with rich beam telling a story about his old caddy steve Duplanis. uh it's a great episode great stories uh from rich again episode 292 rich beam
11: I, I went through probably three or four guys till i found the right one and then once i found the right guy it was great but but steve was awesome in fact jim Furick and i had a con- conversation about him not long ago because he worked for jim for many years and steve was eh, steve was legendary I mean, I mean ep- was legendary epic, epic legendary. Just the fact that he he had no concept of time. Time just did not <laughs> Is really that important for a caddy. The time did not really agree with Steve. There were more often than not, and and Jim and I were talking. How many times did you carry the bag to the range? He carried the bag to the range, as I did carry the bag to the range before the final rounds of when he was winning tournaments. You know, and so it's just he was Steve was. Steve was up unto his own he was he was a different breed he was a different animal and i i've been around Steve at times after we won the kemper open this this is a perfect example of Steve right here so we win the kemper open i cut him a check for 45 grand that's 10% and i sent it to him we had a week off and i give it to him i said cash this on thursday or friday because the funds won't hit my account until to Wednesday. Mm-hmm. This is not a problem. So we take the week off afterwards and we come back in Memphis and Memphis at that time. If you ever wanted to buy a Rolex or a nice watch, there was a jewelry store, a jeweler in Memphis that had gave you a great discount on watches and everybody knew it. And I was wearing, a, I don't even know what I was wearing. a Swiss army watch. I think it was just, it was a nice Swiss army, watch, mm-hmm. but it was a Swiss army watch. Anyways, I meet Steve on Tuesday morning before we go play and he goes, Bro, hell of a job last week or the week before. Hell of a job there. Let's keep it going. Let's us like, yeah, that sounds great. He says, and just so you know, this is how much I believe in you. I went on and bought me something. Okay. He bought himself a $25,000 gold presidential Rolex with a white face. <laughs> and out of the $45,000, he spent 25000 on that, and who knows where the other twenty thousand went? It, I mean, I'm pretty sure it did not go to Mr. Tax.
4: I was going to say, there's a tax rate. I right don't now. really think
11: that that I don't think that existed. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that was Steve. I mean, he went out and bought himself that watch, and I'm shaking my head, going, "Are you kidding me? I mean, that was unbelievable, unbelievable." I told that story to to Furyk, and he goes. That's that is about right. That is that's about right. I mean, and he just but you get him inside the ropes and he was. I think the the nickname they gave him that week was Yoda because he was always in my head, is he always in my face and whatnot during the win of the Kemper. But he was so good at what he did at but he had no and it's funny when i say no concept of time and he goes out and buys himself a rolex like that's going to help out steve
4: <laughs> like that's going
11: to help you it really doesn't
4: but that irony was lost on me yeah, yeah so him.
11: he just you know i i i miss him dearly uh, i really do because i think that i think that as he as he would have aged he would have he would have slowed down a little bit and and probably gotten the bag that he deserved. I mean, I think he would have been one of those caddies that would have been on the bag for a long time. I mean, I look at him like a Bones, like a Steve Williams. I mean, he really was that good at, at saying the right things at the right time.
4: Up next, episode 352 with Jim Furick talking about the Ryder Cup. This was in our U.S. Open preview. Uh, just talking about the captaincy and the experience and, uh, yeah, all of that. Episode 352. When I mentioned the 2018 Ryder Cup, is it immediately is it a happy memory
12: uh, catch-22 I mean I, I loved I loved the process I loved all the work and the hundreds of hours that my wife and I put into it and it comes to fruition and I loved the 12 guys I had and the way it looked and that'll always be my team uh, they most of them still call me cap when I look at it the result. I mean the result stings I mean it'll forever there's losses uh, that you said will haunt you forever. I mean, that's the one that I'll never – I won't get over that. But, hmm. you know, I can tee it up in a tournament and go play. But I'd be lying if I said it's my favorite event. It's it's probably the, the mark on my career that bothers me the most is I've been involved with so many Ryder Cups. Right? I've been, I think, involved with 11. I played in – I might have been involved with more, maybe 12. We've won uh, – I played on nine teams, so – I guess I'm involved with my twelfth now as an assistant for And you were assistant as in sixteen as for well. Davis. Yeah, that's right. So uh so I'm involved now in my twelfth. But, you know, eleven events and we're three and eight and so I look at it that way where um you know, sixteen was so much fun for me just to watch those guys play so well and and pretty much dominate from start to finish and, and uh and bring home the cup and I was just so proud of them and so happy for Davis because you know, quite honestly, we shit the bed at Medina and and uh, it's something that shouldn't happen. You know, I felt bad for Davis as a player, I, you know, looking back and, and, and a dear friend. And so to see him do uh, a great job and then the guys go out and respond and play so well, I was just proud of the team and, and happy for Davis as a captain, you know, to have that scenario kind of flipped. And, and uh, we got, you know, we got off to a good start, but then got behind the eight ball in that second and third session. And I look at it, I'm sure there's guys out there that said, Uh, You know, we wish we would have played better. I wish I would have made some, you know, I guess the the funniest comment, and and funny is a bad word, but the comment that surprises me, it shocks me the most, is I've had a handful of people come up and say, you know, if you got to do it all over again, would you do something different? And I almost laugh. I'm like, well, what arrogant asshole would have the event go the wrong way and then say, nope, I'd do everything the same way? (laughs) Like, how – I mean – of course, I do things differently, right? And hindsight's 2020, and sure. of course, I go back and change. At the time, you know, I'm, I'm looking at my vice captains, I'm looking at uh, a stats team, I'm looking at a lot of different things, and having I'm the CEO, I'm the one's got to pull the trigger and make the decisions. And and I thought we were doing the right thing, you know. And would I change? Absolutely. Well, I think we all would if if that, if that made sense, top to bottom, and that's part of it. So does it bother me? It always will. Yeah. But uh, the whole process itself. Uh, it's something that I, I, I always wanted to do. Uh, you know, after I played in like maybe two or three of those Ryder Cups, and you're like, oh, man, would it It would just be cool if I got the opportunity to lead and, and uh, be a captain of this team. And then after you play on, you know, six, seven teams, I'm thinking, you know, it's probably it's probably will we'll come to fruition. It could be an opportunity someday. And you just kind of wait your turn. And I was kind of thankful that I – I mean, everyone wants a home game, but we're going to go over there and we're going to win. And we're on foreign soil, and we're gonna, I firmly believe we're going to turn this around. Uh, and in order to do that, we have to win on foreign soil. I really wanted to be uh, part of the team. I wanted to be the captain of the team that did that. It didn't come to fruition, but it, it will. And uh, hopefully I'll be traveling over there, and maybe I'll be having a cocktail with Curtis and Ben, and, and uh, I'll have a big smile on my face when it happens.
4: Hmm. Up next, episode 297. This is from the quarantine period. Uh, Hal Sutton came on to talk – about a lot of things, one of which was how the game of golf has changed, and he spoke pretty uh, pretty passionately on this topic. So, episode two ninety seven,
13: Hal Sutton. Sometimes I wake up and think I don't even know what golf is today, but that's a whole other subject line right there. But I'm happy to dive
4: into that. I'm, I'm curious to, as to what, what 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 you mean by that that you're not even sure what golf is these days.
13: Well, uh, there's no artistry in the game that much anymore. You know, it's uh. There's shots out there that don't mean as much uh, as they used to. Uh, And there's people out there that are not learning the shots uh, that are part of the game. And we've got balls that don't spin, clubs that won't get it in the air. And, uh, you know, everybody's trying low spin and high launch angle and hit it as far as you can. And we hit a bunch of pulls and pushes, but we don't hit hooks and draws. I'm talking good players now. It's face-driven, you know, path-driven, face-driven. And uh, no one knows anything about hitting a shot, let's say, a 150-yard shot into a 25-mile-an-hour wind to a front pin over water because the ball doesn't spin and it doesn't upshoot. shoot So you want me to keep going because I can oh, yeah. name you this 10 different great. shots. <laughs> no, I, I can honestly name you 10 different shots that people don't know how to hit. You know, I just had a conversation with Fred Ridley the other day, and I told him, I said, you know, if we'd make the ball spin more, I said, there's an art and, and we used to admire a guy that could aim it down the left-hand side of the fairway and cut it back into the center of the fairway. And I said, we respected him, and we admired it, and it was exciting to watch a guy be able to do that, to have that much command over his golf swing. And I said, then on the other hand, it was also exciting when he did it, and he didn't mean to, because then you got to see how he handled trouble by the curvature of the ball. I said, we don't have that anymore. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm not against 125-mile-an-hour uh, club head speed and the ball going 350 yards. I said, let's just make it curve. I said, let's put some excitement back into the game. And that's my theory. You know, I mean, I don't mind the ball being as, going as far as it is. That's fine. I mean, it's hurt the consumer for the ball to go that far. I can tell you that because the consumer has paid the price for all of this. You know, they spent billions of dollars changing all of the golf courses around. They're the ones that spend the billions of dollars buying five and $600 drivers of pros. You know, they don't have to pay for any of this stuff.
4: <laughs> Next up, episode 316. This is with Henrik Stenson talking about two of the slumps he's gone through in his career and how he came out on the better end of it. Um, again, this is from a June episode, episode 316 with Henrik Stenson. Uh,
14: it's two, really. They go hand in hand the same way... Uh when you're playing good they're connected and they're going to be connected when you're playing poorly so um, i've used the saying that you normally don't develop mental problems if you if you hit it 300 yards down the center center line all the time then you're not uh, worrying about missing fairway so yeah i just started spraying it really off the tee and the first 20 provisional shots were probably no not much thought in but when you're hitting your 50th uh, provisional tee shot and then you start thinking like, "Ooh, oh, what's down the left or what's down the right here?" So uh, yeah, certainly, certainly uh, ended up with, with both a technical and a mental problem. And uh, you know, there's always something good coming out of something bad. And uh, that's when my one of my ex caddies uh, that I worked with back in 2001, he introduced me to to Pete Cowan. Uh, at the end of that year and I started seeing Pete and it was a long journey together with him and, and also my, my mental coach uh, back in Sweden and uh, it took us probably about two seasons, a year and a half, two seasons before we were back uh, playing playing really good golf again. So uh, uh, yeah, that was certainly challenging times but I think you learn the most both about yourself and what you need to do when, when things are tough and and uh, and you really got to dig deep to to get back. So I think yeah, I'm proud over a lot of tournament wins and a lot of things I've achieved on the golf course. But going through the two slumps that I've gone through is that's really character building and something I'm I'm really proud of. Up next,
4: episode 270. This is with Cameron McCormick and Corey Lundberg from the Altus Performance Center um, in Dallas. The uh, Cameron is, of course, Jordan Speeds coach. He talks about meeting Jordan for the first time and a great story about uh, learning how uh, special this kid's short game was. Episode 270, Cameron McCormick.
15: Yeah, so different levels. I started uh, receiving more inbounds. I remember a kid that played AGGA level golf who was a separator, but he wasn't one of the best, but he started getting invitationals. um, And his name doesn't really matter because no one would know him these days. He's not playing anymore. Uh, but he started playing in invitations and playing really well. And that in the local community of Dallas-Fort Worth here started to bring these inbounds in. And then one of those inbounds was 2006 when Jordan's dad called me and said, hey, can I bring my son by? He's pretty darn good and never had much instruction, if any at all. And I want you to take a look. We're in the market for a coach. And then he started winning invitationals at 14, 15 years old. And then it was just a flow of junior golfers from that point. And I think if we look back now, five of the last nine US Junior, champ- US junior Champions have come through uh, my coaching and also performance here. And then that turned into uh, professional ranks as he grew and I had the other professional players at the same time. So it kind of happens in phases. Yeah, you, you can't expect to, to coach the uh, best junior player in the country or the world and that for, for that to bring in professional clients. But as soon as you get uh, a successful professional client, then that that can change things.
2: I'm sure it's a story you've told a bazillion times, but uh, talk to me about the first lesson with him, What your first meeting with him, all all that stuff. Paint a picture of
5: what he was like.
15: Uh, two weeks shy, of he's uh, 13th birthday, middle of the summer in Dallas. He comes in and he just had played in a tournament called Starburst. And it's a 54-hole tournament held at Waco. And the quality of the golf courses aren't great. Played an Air, for- Air Force golf course where the size of the ground cracks are about the width of a golf ball. So you can lose a golf ball in a ground crack. And <laughs> Yeah, thanks for <laughs> coming. truest hazard. Yeah, yeah. And he, um, we sit down and we talk. We talk for at least 30, 45 minutes, um, Jordan and myself and his dad. And uh, one of the questions I asked him was, well, what do you want to do in golf? What can I help you achieve? What goals do you have? And the first one he said is, I want to win the Masters. I'm like, cool, let's go do it. 12 years old. And then uh, we start hitting balls, and he's got a really funky, idiosyncratic movement. But my goodness, could he control the ball? And he could hit all the shots. Um, I oftentimes reflect back on the notes that I take in lessons. And uh, I'd never seen it before out of someone so young. I'd, I'd coached some professional players to that point, but this was just otherworldly. So I turned off all my gadgets, my video, my track man. And I said, let's go play golf. I gotta see this on the golf course. And he had supreme confidence and well in what he was as well in what he was doing. Um, we t- went to the golf course, we played nine holes. I was awfully impressed. He shot even par. And it would be wrong to skip over. The main story that I tell from that experience is I didn't see him hit many short game shots because he was hitting all fairways and all greens. And I said, well, Jordan, I've got to test this short game that you're so confident with. And so I gave him this challenge. And the challenge was to get up and down three different spots on three different holes. And he's not doing great. And we get to the last hole, playing it out, he, he, he makes par and I give him three up and down opportunities. And there was a prize, it was an incentive for how well he um, he was gonna perform. And he needed to essentially uh, hold two shots and get the other, the third ball up and down to win this prize. And he proceeds to hold the first one, short chip from off the fringe, get the next bunker shot up and down by hitting it to like a couple of inches, maybe a foot away. And then the last shot, I picked the most difficult possible shot that I could find on the green. He looks at me, he gives me a grin and he proceeds to hold this flop shot. (laughs) <laughs> to to win what then was a very minor prize, but a major one in his mind, which was a hat from the golf shop that I was at. And you know what? the 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 moral of the story, the point of the story is this kid showed up with such assurance, such a like psychological advantage, a, a self belief that he could get it done, and set the goals the, the bar really high, and said, "I'm going to chase him down."
4: Wow, I've never I've never heard that story. I'm sure you've told that one before. I've told it heard millions that. of times. And time
15: my tell, I'm like. I wonder how long I should take to tell the story because it could go on and on
2: and on. <laughs> I've heard it before and I'm, okay. like, I'm like on the edge of my seat. So I'm like, oh, okay. yeah, I knew he's going to hold the last time. But yeah.
4: Up next, Joel Damon, episode 335. Uh, eventually in this clip we get to him telling the story of how he shot 58. Uh, this was a really great episode. This isn't the uh, most exciting clip in the world, but I just found you know the conversation with him to be quite interesting on day-to-day tour life and somebody that's improved a lot over the years. So one, I highly recommend you listen to. Episode 335, Joel Damon.
6: I think my iron play this year has been up. two uh, to t- t- green has always been okay, but my iron play this year has been a lot better. Um, I think it's just, just a little more consistent. I haven't necessarily been, um, you know, you're always working on little things in your golf swing, but I've always been able to hit it okay. I, my wedges and chipping were better for a while. I think these this, since quarantine, they, they haven't been so great. Uh, not practicing for three months is not a great idea, but I think that's slowed down. But for me also, I think the other side is just not freaking out when I see my name on the leaderboard. Like I believe I'm supposed to be there now, and I expect myself to be there more often than not. So, you know, instead of... Just trying to hold on or, or just, you know, if I'm around the cut line now, I'm trying to, you know, get in the top 25, and then I'm trying to get in the top 20 and then top 10. So uh, doing that and just being more comfortable seeing my name on the board and, you know, having that freedom, I guess, is, has been good. Did you really not practice for three months? Well, practice, I no, I, I played plenty of golf. I played two or three times a week, but I didn't hit a shot on track, man, until the Monday of Colonial, um, and I never saw my coach, never played a sober round of golf in three months <laughs> <laughs> so yeah well no that's not true there I played nine holes with a couple juniors uh during quarantine where I had to walk and that was the only time I didn't have at least one beverage <laughs> do you play better when you're uh having some beverages I did shoot 58 uh that oh, was that, yeah that was multiple uh I think we had you know a standard is is three or four on each nine Um, so that's pretty standard for us at Mesa Country Club. Well,
4: yeah, I was gonna say like a a blackout is when you're, you know, you're taking it super deep, but if you're drinking while having a blackout, taking it deep, is that a double blackout? Yeah, I
6: think so. Uh, there's definitely some browning out going on there. Uh, I, I do remember I kind of knew something cool was happening on the 17th hole. I actually drank some water. Um, that's pretty rare, but, uh, I did, I, I actually like chugged a bottle of water on 17 and 18. And I was in the fairway at 18. I'm like, oh, no. Did I, like, ruin this whole thing by having water? Um, but obviously, I, I I didn't, luckily, in the end.
4: Next up, another one from Brad Faxon. This is episode 276, and uh, it's a poop story. Episode 276, Brad Faxon.
0: Oh, uh, the Buick Open. I, I, this was an amazing story. I, I didn't know it at the time, but I had an, an allergy to kind of, like, wheat, gluten, uh, and dairy. And the guy that I used to stay with at the Beer was the tennis pro there at Warwick Hills. And he lived out at Lake Fenton. And his favorite thing was beer and pizza. And that's what we see him eat every night. And he, he lived in this lake where you could water ski, beer, pizza, beer, pizza. So I have, the, obviously, early Thursday morning tea time. is a 20, 20-minute 20 ride. I'm like, oh, my God, I don't feel very good. I had to stop two times on the way uh, from his house uh, to the court to course and then get to the course I'm playing. I think I was playing with Andy North. And I was full-fledged uh, diarrhea. I was losing it. And I'm like, I don't even know if I'm going to get to play. I uh, tee off on number 10 and go sprinting back into the clubhouse, come running out to hit my second shot, get on the 11th tee, hit my tee shot, run to another portlet. Went seven times on the front nine, shot. I think I shot 29. I think I was. You s- did. You told, So This you did yeah, tell yeah. this one so, on the first
4: podcast, but uh, it, I
0: love the, I love hearing it even again. No, and I was taking some meds, some low modal or whatever that, Imodium. I was piling it in there. I, I don't think I went to the bathroom for two months afterwards. <laughs> but I, I did have a doctor tell me, well, you know why you won that tournament, don't you? Because I ended up winning the tournament. No, yes, I know that yes. part. Yes, oh, I, I shot 65 the first round. And um, uh, everybody was shaking their head laughing in my group. And probably had pizza and beer the rest of the week. But um, the uh, <laughs> this one doctor was friends with, with Tom Kite, Ernie Katsuyama, he said, well, you, you know, when you take um, – Low modal or Amiodiam or whatever the stronger drug—it's like a beta blocker. It just relaxes you, and that's why you won. And I got insulted by that. I go, "Come on, give me a little credit." <laughs> I didn't have diarrhea all four days, <laughs> but um, everybody like at the Masters used to laugh at me because part of my pregame prep was hit balls in the range, go to putt, run into the men's room, and come out and then go right to the first tee. <laughs> That's I crazy. was the one that paid for the tee on the, the men's room on five.
4: Were you a better <laughs> afternoon player than morning player? Oh, yeah, <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, I still am. <laughs> Next up, episode 372 with Wright Thompson talking about writing about Tiger Woods and
16: how he came up with that story. I didn't know anything, and I wasn't expecting anything, which is I think, probably why it worked. I just was like, I need to start calling people. I mean, I, I mean, this sounds oversimplistic, but basically what I just tried to call every human being he'd ever interacted with in those 10 years. And the Navy SEAL thing was interesting. I, I still talk to some of those guys. I was texting with one two days ago. It's interesting that like once one of them decided that they were talking, then everyone was talking. And so, you know, they, it took a long time to crack. But once you did, just a number of people who had hilarious stories. And, like, I've gotten hilarious stories after the fact, like after the story ran, some of the seals who I hadn't found reached out to me.
4: Do you mind for the listeners at least revisit? It's impossible. It's like a 14,000 word story or something like that. It's impossible to recap it completely, but kind of just at least telling the story of, uh, you know, that, or at least what I consider the main crux of the story, which was after his dad passing, passing away, he really, you know, looked quite seriously
16: into becoming a Navy seal. He
13: really wanted to. And,
16: And to the point that like, he was running around Isleworth in combat boots and long pants, which is, you know, you have to do. There's a sort of unofficial thing, number of pull-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, and a timed mile in combat boots That to even sort of be considered to get into the BUDS, which is the uh, SEAL selection process and, and weeding out process and then training program. And, I mean, he was doing that. I mean, that, that was not, that was something that was happening. And there were friends of his who really thought that he wanted to join the Navy. You know, I, it's interesting that seeing, I sort of feel like the Jack, catching Jack obsession is a media thing. But I feel like I learned enough about Tiger Woods to know, in some ways, I bet last year's, Matt, was it last year? Good Lord, it seems like 10 years ago. <laughs> was it Last year's Masters really meant the world to him. You know, people don't realize his kids had never seen him beat Tiger Woods. One was an infant, and the one other one wasn't born the last time he'd won a major. You know, they heard all these stories. You know, he talks about how his kids thought he was a YouTube golfer. Yeah. And so, in some ways, I'm just so happy for him. I'm happy for him for a million reasons. But one of them is that his kids don't have to sort of spend their whole lives trying to get to know Tiger Woods the most important part of his father's life would have forever been a mystery to them. It would be a a thing they learned about, but never felt. And so for him to get to do that, and for them to see him be type of fucking woods, that's an incredible gift. And I mean, I don't know how many majors he has now, 14, 15? 15 now, yeah. And I just don't think it matters. Like, catch Jack, don't catch Jack. His journey is incredibly singular. You know, he's like LeBron James in that he was burdened with these incredible expectations, and yet they didn't break him. They bent him. They bent the shit out of him. I think he would tell you that. But, like, there is something – there was something – I cried watching that last year. I was on an airplane watching it, and the airplane had the TV, thank God. And I just was really, really emotional because I sort of – Felt like I understood what it meant, and look, the guy did some shitty things. And like, if you're his wife, I understand being pissed at him. But I mean, my God, he paid a public cost, and so I, I was really, really happy for him.
4: Yeah. Well, what were some of the you? You touched on that. You still are hearing funny stories trickle in, but either you know stories that you've heard since you wrote it, or the ones your some of your favorite stories uh, that made it into the story. If you could relay uh, relay some of uh, those. Well, for the I listeners. mean, <laughs> secure the tennis you know, ball
16: is so great to me. It's it, you know, uh, he, he likes to talk in military lingo. Copy that, you know. Uh, he uh, His dog ran off with a tennis ball at a marina one time, and he called on there and asked them if they could secure the tennis ball. It's <laughs> so good. You know, one of the things they do in the Kill House is they, you're presented with scenarios where there are hostages, there are hostage takers, there are civilians, and you can only kill the right people. And they, they just, the Seals love to laugh at how Tiger kept uh, shooting photographers, <laughs> which I thought was perfect. Like Freud's a motherfucker.
4: I also love the part where they they you know he comes in and they they, they said they light him up his, his his eyes lit up like a deer in headlights and they were lighting him up with you know paintball basically like paintball guns uh, but how he wasn't re- wasn't ready for some of the attacks that came on him
16: no I mean no these are serious people and all that stuff is hilarious I mean I what should have been one of the main takeaways of the story that like I don't think was was you do not want to fight Tiger Woods like. Tiger Woods will kick your ass. Like, I mean, you know, that is a bad, bad idea. And you you also just think like, I mean, and this is sort of combining the two threads of this conversation, but watching Tiger Woods win a golf tournament is very different than watching one of these other guys win a golf tournament. And I don't just mean, I mean, the numbers bear that out for sure, but it's also just like, it's a difference between the Champions League and an MLS game. Just in terms of the energy.
4: Next up, Stephen Curry, episode three seventy eight, talking about playing in a Corn Ferry event and uh the nerves and all the everything that goes with
17: playing a professional golf event. Such a cool experience and I played in five finals, been in play in front of nineteen thousand fans and crazy, you know, adrenaline rushes out in the court. There is absolutely nothing to no way for me to really express how nervous I was on that first tee when they called my name. I, I damn near, uh, blacked out on, uh, on the first tee shot. I just hoped I hit it and hoped it got in the air. It was, uh, it was really kind of an out of body experience. So,
4: well, that's not your sport. It's not your sport. You know, like basketball nah. is your sport. You go just, you know, you go play. <laughs> this is not your thing. And you know, you're doing it in front of a ton of eyeballs. There's got to be that kind of
17: feeling. The other thing that I learned, which I don't think people appreciate watching these guys week after week after week, is I was exhausted, like mentally and physically. Walking the course, being in that mode for five hours straight, like pre round, during the round, post round. Like it's uh, getting in golf shape. You know, there's athletes out there, but it's a different experience of staying, you know, locked in and engaged and. All the different ways that they approach, kind of being on top of the game, it's it's uh it's pretty awesome, man.
4: Yeah, and they pick up and move on to the next state, city, whatever it is, the very next week, and usually usually don't miss a beat. Well, before I build you up too much, I got to issue at least a bit of a mea culpa. So first, I do want to say I was a huge in huge support of you playing in the in the May
17: because I appreciate I that. <laughs>
4: it's great for the event, it's great for fans, great for golf, but not everyone. You know, some people have kind of bad attitudes toward that towards that kind of thing. I'm sure you heard at least. Some of that, oh, yeah. but I also said before you teed it up, I was like, you're going to do us all in the golf media world a great favor because you're going to be help us highlight the difference between a scratch player and professional. And I said, if you broke 80, that'd be a great achievement. And I still believe that. So you go out and shoot 74 and throw this huge curveball, and now i got to backtrack and try to – everyone's like, see, the scratch player's not that far off. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, this was a crazy, impressive achievement. So did you do better – you shot 74-74 in 2017. Did you do better than you expected to, honestly? See,
17: that's like the – The the teaser question for every golfer is like, yeah, I did better leading up to it, but in the round, like, damn, I left seven shots out there. (laughs) If if I could have, if I could have, you know, just uh, played a little smarter, made a couple more putts, like I might have been, you know, teasing with the cut. So I definitely, definitely keeping it real. I definitely played better than I thought. It was one of those I had, you know, two or three bad tee shots that might have, you know, taken myself out of a out, out of position or whatnot. But I found a way to just, you know, save bogey and kept my morale up. And I knew in those moments that was a huge victory where it could go. I appreciate you not mentioning what happened in 2018 in the, in the second round. So, We're going to uh, get there. We're <laughs> going to get there. I'm not done with that. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it was, uh, it was amazing to, to play a solid 18 holes and then back it up the next day knowing – I had set the bar really high and the conversation around my game going into the tournament is like, oh, you're taking up somebody's spot, this and that. Um, which we all know that's not 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 true in the case, but highlighting, you know, how how hard it is to make it to the PJ tour and what these Corn Fairy guys Go through just to make it to that level, but then the golf world started going crazy and hyping me up and congratulating me and all that type of stuff. And, and I did a press conference afterwards, and Jack Nicholas was talking about my game. I'm like, Yo, this is absolutely insane! So to back it up the next day with another another great round was awesome.
4: And then shoot 71 the I next
17: year, I beat one of the guys, yeah. You beat Sam yeah, Ryder, I know, day. I had oh. that
4: That's <laughs> <Yes>, my guy, <God. laughs>
17: you didn't want to name him by my name, God. but I was
4: willing to do so.
17: Well, it seemed like the pros his, was- his, his mom, his mom found me in the uh, in the clubhouse afterwards and she was mad at me and that is officially a wrap on 2020 thank you everyone
4: for listening all year long and we'll see you again in 2021
0: be the right club be the right club today
4: yes! yeah, I mean, that's
11: better than most how about him that is
1: better than most better than most
12: Expect.